right, so uh, last week um, we went through the books of Joshua and Judges. In the book of Joshua, we uh, looked at the patriarchal promises, and we saw how those patriarchal promises, which were introduced all the way back in uh, Genesis chapter 12, continued to be a main driver of the narrative, not only in the, in the Pentateuch, but also once we get to the book of Joshua. The whole book of Joshua is about uh, what God is going to, to do to fulfill those promises uh, historically. Uh, in the book of Joshua, we also looked, uh, looked at this concept called uh, the band or uh, the things that are devoted to the Lord. Um, and what we kind of found out was is that for a particular time in Israel's history, um, for a particular purpose, for conquering the promised land, um, God told it, the Israelites to go into the, into the promised land and to, to wipe peoples out. Um, and there are a lot of reasons that he did this. One reason is because those people certainly were not innocent. They, they actually uh, often took the initiative in attacking Israel. Um, but more importantly in that, um, the Bible leads us to believe that uh, these people um, were great sinners. Um, they, uh, their iniquity is mentioned all the way back uh, in Genesis chapter 15, and God says, I'm going to use... Abraham, I'm going to use your descendants to judge this people, um, but the full measure of their iniquity, he says, hasn't come in. You're going to wait 400 years, and then I'm going to send your people in there, and y'all are going to be my, my tool of judgment against them. So uh, while this concept often seems unnecessarily brutal to our modern consciousness, um, this concept displays the holiness and glory of God in a unique uh, way during this unique point in history. Uh, in the book of Judges, we looked, about, looked at how after Israel had inherited the land, they had gone into the promised land and conquered it, um, how the, the Israelites, the people, gradually um, began to look a lot more like the people that they drove out rather than the people who actually came into the land. Uh, I called this, uh, this concept in the book of Judges the Canaanization of Israel. They, Israel started look on, looking a lot less like Israel and a lot more like the Canaanites. Uh, we also looked at how God is glorified in human weakness in a way, in a way that he will never be in human strength. Uh, we saw that throughout the book of Judges. And then we didn't look at this for very long, but we also briefly considered Israel's need for a king to stop the steady progress of their canonization and to bring some stability back into the Israelite uh, kingdom. Um, we also, I didn't really get into this too much, I didn't highlight it too much, but we also did begin to discuss um, the importance of the arrangement of the Old Testament text. Uh, it looks like the book of Joshua uh, wasn't just written on its own. It looks like it was written for the purpose of actually following the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Well, when we come to Judges, it looks like Judges was actually written to follow the book of Joshua uh, in a sequence, okay? And so when we, uh, we're going to look at this a lot more tonight, actually. Um, and what we see uh, uh, after all of this is that when all of these books are read together, they together form a, lar a larger narrative than any one of them by itself could compose, okay? But uh, even though they're all historical narratives, it's not just a, a, a tracing of Israel's history, even though it does that. It starts at, at creation, right, even before the nation of Israel ever existed. Uh, and it comes to Abraham and um, 
uh, Isaac and Jacob, and that's kind of the beginning, uh, beginnings of Israel hi- Israel's history. Then it goes to Exodus, and uh, then the finally to Joshua and the coming out of the land. And so, what we have is a is a history of Israel, but it's not just a history; it's a theological history, right? The the authors of these books are writing to make theological points about Israel's history. So, uh, we're gonna. Uh, tonight we're going to see how the books of Samuel and Kings actually continue this, this story that we're going to see. Uh, we're also uh, going to see how the first five books of the Bible, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Deut- Deuteronomy, form what is known as the Pentateuch. Um, well, the next four books of the Bible, um, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, actually form uh, a unit as well. In the Hebrew Old Testament, these four books are known as the uh, as the former prophets. And we're going to conclude tonight by actually uh, looking, ab- looking at what these four books um, say when they're read as a, as a unit. Um, they have an interesting message uh, when we read them together. Um, so uh, before we get started, um, you'll notice on the, on the PowerPoint, and uh, as I'm going through this, I'm going to be referring to... Uh, to um, the books of Samuel and the books of Kings, okay? Now, at first, that might sound a little bit strange to, to your ear, right? Because we're used to hearing what? We're used to hearing the books of First and Second Kings, right? And the, uh, and the books of First and Second Samuel, right? Well, actually, uh, as these uh, books were originally written, uh, they weren't written as separate books, First and Second uh, Samuel and First and Second Kings. They were actually written... Uh, as single as single works, right? There was just originally there was just Samuel, and originally there was just Kings. Okay, and so uh, just to help you kind of understand some of the terminology I'll be using, I don't want you to be confused uh, when I'm going to be speaking about this. Um, when I when I'm actually referencing a, a verse of scripture, I'm going to try and include <laughs> first and second, um, just because there's no other way that we can really uh, that we can reference verses uh, these verses in these books. I um, also want you to know, uh, w- once we come to the, you know, in, in the Old Testament, we also have First and Second Chronicles, the same situations going on there. That was originally one book. Uh, when we get into the New Testament, we run into some First and Seconds as well. Um, but the same thing getting going on there. When we read uh, First and Second Corinthians, for example, th- those weren't originally written as one book. They, they were originally written as two separate books. And so the terminology uh, uh, is actually consistent there. Um, these, these books that we're looking at tonight uh, were actually broken apart um, when the Bible was actually translated from Hebrew into Greek. Um, when, you, when you go from Hebrew to Greek, it, it expands the uh, length that the books take up on a scroll, and so the need kind of arose for them to be uh, divided together. One other thing that um, I wanted to make sure that uh, uh, to address is uh, you'll notice that I'm not addressing the book of Ruth tonight. So last week we ended with the book of Judges. If you turn over from the last page of Judges in our English Bibles, you encounter the book of Ruth, not the book of Samuel, okay? And so uh, I haven't forgotten about Ruth, and, and we are going to talk about Ruth uh, in the Bible. The reason that I'm doing that is um, because in the actual order of most uh, most of the uh, most ancient arrangements of scripture, Ruth didn't actually come after the book of Judges like in our Bibles. Uh, it actually came uh, uh, in the third section of the Hebrew Old Testament in what's known, known as the writings. And so I, I actually think, uh, I, I think it's perfectly legitimate 
uh, to read the book of Ruth in the order and the arrangement that we see in, in our English Bibles. Uh, I think there's a, a place for that, and I think that's actually, um, uh, I think that'll actually help you see what one, at least one biblical author had in mind. Um, but overall, there, there's, um, there's a, there's a, um, there's, there's another perspective as far as uh, where to locate the book of Ruth, and that's actually what we're going to be what we're going to be following here. So we'll actually hit the book of Ruth, I think, about midway uh, through our through our course next semester. Uh, this is actually the last week of the course uh, for this part of it. So uh, the way that we've got this um, conceived of is we have Old Testament introduction one and Old Testament introduction two. Tonight is week six. It's the final week of Old Testament introduction one. I think we're going to be off next week. Uh, we're not going to meet in here. I think we do have activities planned here at the church. Um, but then the following week, so two weeks from now, we'll actually begin uh, introduction to Old Testament part two. We're going to be looking at uh, the prophets of uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah at that point. So uh, starting out, we're going to look at a uh, look at the book of Samuel, and of course we're going through our interpretive uh, triad. Uh, we're going to look at the, these books tonight historically, literarily, and theologically. Um, when we go to look at the book of Samuel historically, so far we've been talking about uh, uh, who the author of these books are. Well, when we actually come to the book of Samuel, um, the book of Samuel is like the other two books that we discussed last week, is technically anonymous. Okay, it, it doesn't identify the author for us, um, and actually there's not a lot of good uh, information in Samuel that would actually help us to identify the author. And so for the book of Samuel, we're not going to be concerned about who the author is so much. We're going to be a lot more concerned about uh, the time period in which, these, uh, in which this book was written. So when was this book written? Well, uh, just going by the events that we read about in the book of Samuel, uh, it looks like the book of Samuel, the events that we read about in it, start about the year 1100 B.C., and it covers events all the way through the end of 2 Samuel. We uh, cover events going all the way to the year 970 B.C. And so we have about 230 years of historical material covered in the, in the book of Samuel. And, but the key uh, thing for us to keep in mind is that the book of Samuel had to have been written after that, right? And so... Um, the book of Samuel couldn't have been written before the actual events that it's recording. It had to come after that. And uh, I, I think this is actually important because uh, I think that the book of Samuel was actually written sometime into Israel's monarchy. So we're going to learn tonight Israel's monarchy begins with Saul. It goes on to David and then uh, continues with Solomon. I think the book of Samuel was actually written sometime even after Solomon. Um, I think that's important for uh, understanding some of the theological uh, message of the book. So the um, main thing to remember about the book of Samuel historically is it's written most likely after the year 970 B.C. So uh, let's think about li Samuel from a literary perspective. Um, the, one of the best ways to look at Samuel from a literary perspective is just to look at who the main characters are and to look at what they're doing in the book. So there's three main characters, uh, human characters. Of course, God's, uh, God's a main character all the way through the book. But three main human characters in the book of Samuel. We have actually Samuel himself. We see him in uh, 1 Samuel chapters 1 through 8. Uh, then we come to King Saul, Israel's first king. We read about him from 1 Samuel 
uh, chapter 9 through verse 5 uh, through uh, chapter 15 and then we come to David uh, Israel's greatest king uh, who's who we encounter first in first Samuel chapter 16 and he carries us through all the way to the end of the book was that which is actually the book of second Samuel chapter 24 and so uh, the these three, uh, these chapter guidelines that I've given you up on the screen here, they're just kind of in general, right? That, and they, they actually overlap a lot, right? We uh, continue to read Samuel, uh, about Samuel all the way through Saul and even some into David. Um, we continue to read uh, a, a lot about Saul, actually, even past 1 Samuel 16. Um, but as far as who the, who the main character uh, is, um, the, uh, this kind of represents who the, who the main character is that these books are focusing on. Let's look a little bit more in, in, in detail at these figures. So uh, for Samuel, um, we encounter him in the book of First Samuel, chapters 1 through 8. Uh, the first thing we see is not about Samuel, but about his, uh, his birth, right? Uh, we've been studying about this on Sunday mornings the past couple of weeks, about um, his mother, Hannah, and all the struggles that uh, that she had with barrenness, um, and then God finally uh, blesses her with a child, Samuel, and uh, we read about her song. We uh, see this in the book of First Samuel, chapters 1 through 2. Uh, then we kind of uh, meet this guy called Eli, who's a priest, and his sons are priests. Uh, and in First Samuel, chapters 2 and 3, we read about how God rejects the priesthood uh, of Eli in favor of Samuel. Uh, once we get to 1 Samuel chapters 4 through 6, we uh, have this uh, narrative about the arcs, the Philistines, who are almost kind of like the arch enemy of Israel in the Old Testament. They make a raid and they, uh, they kill Eli's sons, and uh, Eli falls over from a heart attack or something like that once he hears about it. Um, but Eli's sons have made a foolish decision to think that they can just take the ark of God in before them in the, into battle and win the battle, right? They, they think this external uh, show of allegiance to God is going to make up for all their uh, internal uh, rebellion and sin. And, of course, it doesn't actually work out for them. Uh, the Philistines capture the ark, and then everything starts going awful for the Philistines at that point. They can't stand for the holy God of Israel to be in their midst. Literally, they can't stand it. Their God, Dagon, actually falls over on his face before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. And so the um, Philistines actually send the, send the Ark back to Israel. Let's look at Saul. We encounter him first in 1 Samuel chapter 9. Um, actually, right before that, we see the people of Israel coming to Samuel, who's uh, grown old by this point, and they're demanding a king uh, from Samuel. They're saying, Samuel, you're... You're getting old. You're not going to live forever. Your sons don't follow after the, after the Lord like you have all these years. Uh, we want to stop all this judges business, and we actually want a, a king to rule over us. And so, um, Saul is actually the first person that uh, Samuel anoints as king. And so, uh, first, for, uh, before we get to that, why is the book of Samuel actually called Samuel? Um, more than likely because Samuel is actually the person who anoints Israel's first two kings, right? It's a very significant uh, thing to do in Israel's history. So uh, Samuel anoints uh, Saul as king, and, call, and Saul, uh, um, he's anointed as king, and he unites the people of Israel for a very short time. We read about that in 1 Samuel uh, chapters 9 through 12. 
Uh, and then we see Saul actually being rejected by God as Israel's king. We're going to study a little bit uh, more about this. Uh, and we see that in 1 Samuel uh, chapters 13 through 15. Uh, the next slide's going to be really small. I'm sorry about that. I had a lot of information about David to fit on here. But in 1 uh, Samuel chapter 16 through the end of the book, uh, we encounter David, who is Israel's greatest king. Uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, we see David anointed as king over uh, Israel by Samuel. Uh, then for the next um, 14 chapters or so, all the way uh, from uh, first cha uh, 1 Samuel chapter 17, all the way through the end of what we know as 1 Samuel, uh, David's on the run from Saul, right? Saul is uh, committed himself to preserving his kingship and his dynasty and he's trying to kill David and David's constantly on the on the run from Saul um, starting with the uh, uh, first part of 2nd Samuel we see uh, David establishing his kingdom um, he tried uh, the author does everything he can to actually make sure that the reader knows that David didn't try and establish his kingdom through violence uh, but through actually showing acts of kindness to Saul and his uh, uh, and, and his relatives. Um, David consolidates his power and defeats uh, Israel's enemies. We read about that from 2 Samuel chapter 5 through uh, 2 Samuel 10. And then uh, things start to go uh, in a bad way. Uh, well, before I get there, um, uh, that actually, that last section, uh, 2 Samuel 5 through 10, we're going to study this more, but it actually contains one of the most important passages in the Old Testament. Uh, it's what we would call the uh, Davidic covenant. And we are going to encounter that in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 7. We're going to read about how just how God made a covenant with the patriarchs and uh, made promises with them. We're actually going to see God's going to make a similar covenant with David uh, and make some promises to David. So uh, after uh, 2 Samuel uh, chapter 10, we actually see um, a lot of bad things start to crop up in David's life. We read about uh, David's sin with Bathsheba and how he uh, has Bathsheba's uh, husband Uriah murdered after he uh, has impregnated her. Uh, we read about that in uh, 2 Samuel 11, chapters 11 and 12. Uh, the next thing we see is uh, uh, Absalom's revolt against David. Uh, Absalom is David's son. And uh, we read about uh, this narrative. The first time we're introduced to him, we're actually introduced to three of David's uh, children. Um, one is a, his, one of his sons named Amon, and another is a daughter of his named Tamar. And Tamar uh, and Absalom are brother and sister, and they are half-brother with Amon. Well, Amon uh, thinks Tamar's a, a good-looking young Israelite lady, at least we're led to believe that. And uh, he actually... Um, actually abuses her sexually and um, David actually doesn't do anything about it and so it leads Absalom to kill his half-brother Amnon uh, which starts this whole uh, uh, this whole role of events actually leads to Absalom revolting against his father David in order to take over the throne of Israel uh, and so we read about that's a huge portion of the book of 2nd Samuel we read about that from 2nd Samuel 13 through 19 um, and when we get to Second Samuel chapter 20, we see another revolt against David. And then we have a little bit of a, uh, an, an interlude uh, in the storyline of Samuel where we learn about this, uh, some of these songs that David uh, prays to God and some of these songs of thanksgiving where uh, David praises God for what he's done in his life. Um, and we hear about some of David's mighty men. 
And then we come to another negative thing about David. David actually uh, commands his people to take a census over all that he has done, but the census isn't done at the direction of the Lord. Uh, it's actually done where I think we're led to presume that it's being done just out of David's desire to see how vast his empire is. And so he actually encounters God ju- God's judgment. And that's actually the uh, last picture that we see of David is him sinning. But judgment isn't the last picture, actually. The, the last picture is actually a, a picture of grace where David uh, offers himself to be judged on Israel's behalf. Um, we see God sparing um, sparing the people of Israel because of their great king's willingness to be judged uh, uh, on their behalf. So uh, th- still thinking about uh, Samuel in a literary perspective, uh, one of the interesting things about the book of Samuel is that it actually has something we would call a poetic frame, okay? So uh, we've been studying about Hannah's song in uh, the book of First Samuel chapter 2 on Sunday mornings. I think we've gotten through it by now. I, I wasn't there last two Sundays. Uh, but uh, Hannah, Samuel's mom, actually sings this song, uh, rejoicing and exalting the Lord uh, in First Samuel chapter 2 when her son is born. But we actually come at the very end of the book of Samuel to another song. I mentioned a few uh, moments ago where we come to Second Samuel chapters 22 and 23, and we see another song by David this time. And uh, what I'm going to try and uh, show you guys is that these two poems, these two songs on either end of the, of the book of Samuel actually serve as bookends, kind of structuring uh, the, book, uh, uh, the book of Samuel. So two things to know about these two frames, uh, these two songs, is that first there's a lot of different links between them. We're going to look at a couple of these. Uh, notice uh, both of them call uh, the Lord, the, the, they refer to him as the rock. So First Samuel chapter 2, verse 2. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Well, we come to the very end of the book of Samuel in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 3, and we read, For who is God but the Lord? And who is our rock except our God? And so we see God being referred to as, as Israel's rock, their, their foundation, their, their security, the place that they're going to find uh, security and peace. Uh, We also see that um, these songs highlight this theme of exalting the humble and bringing low the proud. So in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 7, we see, uh, we read, The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. We see the same theme mentioned in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 28. You save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. And so we see this idea of, uh, of the Lord reversing the fortunes of the, of the proud versus the humble and the poor versus the rich. We also see uh, God being compared to, uh, to uh, being described as thundering against his enemies. So in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10, this is the first part of that, the, that verse, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. One second Samuel chapter 22, verse 14, we read, The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice. I think there's just one more comparison I want us to look at. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10, uh, we read, He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. What well, we see those uh, two words in the book of 
Second uh, Samuel chapter 22, king and anointed. Uh, chapter 22, verse 51 reads, Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. And so it's very interesting. We see a lot of points of comparison between this poem at the very beginning of Samuel and this poem at the very ending of Samuel. And these are uh, being uh, made in this way to function as kind of bookends for the book and to draw, uh, to draw these two points together. Second thing we need to know about these two points is that not only do they share links with each other, there's also several points where they link up with things in the middle. So let's look at a Let's look at the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 23, verse 25. So this is a point in David's life where uh, Saul was going, out, going after David to, to kill him, to, to, to hunt him down. And in verse 25, we read, And Saul and his men went to seek him. And David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Ma'an. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Ma'an. And we read that, uh, at the end of pursuing David in this place that Saul was pretty much right on his heels and he had him in sight and all of a sudden just out of nowhere this messenger comes up to King Saul and he says King Saul the, the Philistines are, are raiding our cities and you've got to come back and take care of the Philistines and so we actually see that God spared David at that point through the actions of the Philistines and I think it's very significant in the book of First Samuel chapter 23 verse 28 just a few uh uh, a few verses later, we read, therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. And we see, so we see this uh, God being described as a rock in 1 Samuel chapter uh, 2. He's described as Israel's rock uh, in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 22. And here we see the, uh, the rock of David's escape. I think we're meant to, uh, uh, from there, to, meant to kind of see that the Lord is providing a way for David to escape the uh, to escape from his enemies. Let's look at another example. In the book of First Samuel, chapter seven, uh, verse ten, we read, "As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the the Philistines drew near to attack Israel." So this is when Samuel is judging and ruling over Israel, and he's re responsible for leading Israel militarily. And then we read, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. Well, that's the same thing that we saw in 1 Samuel chapter 2 in Hannah's song and in 2 Samuel chapter 22 in David's song. We saw the Lord thundering against Israel's enemies. A few verses later in chapter 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, we read, then Samuel took a stone or a, or a rock, is actually the word in Hebrew there and set it up between Mizpah and Shin and called its name Ebenezer for he said till now the Lord has helped us so we see this idea of the Lord as a, as a rock as, as Israel's foundation and, um, and savior uh, brought up uh, in this story as well let's look at uh, another example in um, uh, let's uh, continue on let's look at um, the book of uh, 2 Samuel chapter 5 verse 12 uh, this verse says, And David, David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people. Well, at the very beginning of the book of Samuel, in chapter 2, we read about how Hannah trusted that the Lord was going to anoint uh, or take after his anointed and Israel's king. Israel didn't even have a king at that point. She's anticipating future kings in Israel. 
And we see that same thing at the end of uh, the book of uh, Samuel in 2 Samuel chapter 22. Uh, we have this idea of God protecting his anointed and watching out for his king. Um, and so what are we to make of this? What are we made to think about? What are we supposed to think about these uh, these bookends around the of the book of Samuel, they have all these links in between them and they link up at various points throughout the throughout the narrative. Well, these two bookends are for us supposed to be the author intends for them to be um, kind of interpretive guides for us as we go through the book of first uh, through the through the book of, uh, book of Samuel, right? And so as we're reading through Samuel, we're supposed to keep these things in mind and uh, be paying close attention to these things as we encounter them in, in the book of Samuel. It's almost as if uh, the author is saying, look, guys, if you want to know everything I'm trying to say, just read these bookends, okay? This is what I'm trying to say, okay? And so uh, in a, from a literary perspective, uh, this is actually what, uh, uh, what the author of Samuel is actually, how, how he's... Uh, conceived of his book coming together. Uh, one final literary thing I mentioned before that uh, about the importance of realizing the order and the arrangement of the Old Testament text. Well, the book of Samuel actually looks like it was composed to follow the book of Judges. Uh, I think there's a, a lot of reasons why this is the case. Um, the, the plots between the two books don't necessarily uh, link up, even though they do to some extent, right? We can uh, we can tell that there's a lot going wrong at the begin at the end of the book of Judges. Well, there's a lot going wrong at the beginning of the book of Samuel. Uh, but when we consider the setting where these narratives take place, we actually see a very important uh, link between the two books. Uh, and four uh, and three times at the end of the book of Judges, we uh, see these references to events that take place in the hill country of Ephraim. Well, the book of Samuel actually begins by referencing this family who's coming out of the hill country of Ephraim. And so we see uh, the setting of these two uh, books are actually being used to link them together. It actually goes uh, deeper than that. You'll remember last week, uh, those of you that he were here, that we discussed uh, the refrain that comes at the end of the book of, uh, at the book of uh, Judges, and it went like this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. We actually see this uh, this particular phrase mentioned four times. Uh, we see it in Judges 17, uh, verse 6, 18, 1, 19, 1, and then at the very end of the book in 21, 25. Well, interestingly enough, uh, right after each one of these occurrences of the concluding refrain of the book of Judges, after we read, in those days there was no king in Israel, very close after that we see this follow-up of an event mentioned in the hill country of Ephraim. So um, this happens in, uh, in um, Judges 17.1 uh, and 17.6. Uh, uh, we see the hill country of Ephraim. It happens in chapter 18 and chapter 19. But then at the very end of the book of Judges, we have this extra uh, concluding, very last thing we read in the book of Judges is that in those days there was no king in the book of, uh, uh, in the, in, for I over Israel. Um, but we don't see this mentioned to the hill country of Ephraim after that until we actually get to the book of Samuel. And so uh, the author of Samuel looks like he was reading Judges and picking up on this literary pattern that the author had going that was left incomplete and actually attempts to complete it at the ver very beginning of his book. 
Uh, so let's uh, transition now and start thinking about Samuel in a theological perspective. And I want to begin thinking about Samuel in a theological uh, perspective from leaving off uh, where we left it in a literary perspective, which is ask the question, why? Why does the author of Samuel attempt to link his book up uh, with the book of Judges? Well, I think he's uh, reading the book of Judges, and he actually is wanting to interact with the book of Judges. Um, uh, he's wanting to interact with uh, the book of Judges and this idea that Israel is uh, supposed to look towards Israel's monarchy uh, to be a stabilizing influence. Uh, we actually see, once we get reading into the, into the book of uh, Samuel, we actually see a lot of uh, alarming uh, influences once we actually encounter Israel's monarchy. Uh, we actually see um, the author of Samuel writing about Israel's first two kings, Saul and David, in ways that remind us of some of the worst judges in the book, in the book of Judges. So uh, we, first we're going to consider uh, Israel's first king, King Saul, and how he's compared to a judge named Jephthah. Um, Jephthah occurs in Judges 11, and Saul, uh, the story that we're going to consider, we encounter in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 14. Um, we, in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 14, we see Saul making this rash vow. We read about this in uh, 1 Samuel 14, verse 24. Uh, we read, And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day, so Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. Well, if we remember back to Jephthah in the book of Judges, uh, chapter 11, uh, if we remember back to verses 30 and 31, we would read, And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return uh, in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. And so we see both of these characters making this rash vow that ends up endangering their offspring. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 14, verses uh, 43 through 44, we read, Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I have tasted the honey with the tip of my staff that was on, uh, on my hand. And he said, Here, here I am, I, I will die. And Saul said, God do, do to you. Uh, to me, and more also, you shall surely die, Jonathan. And so Saul makes this rash vow and says, nobody in my army is allowed to eat anything. If they do, um, before we take over our enemies, I'm going to put them to death. And lo and behold, it's actually his own son who actually disobeys um, the king's command and actually uh, takes honey and eats it. Uh, and so Saul's rash vow endangers his offspring. Well, we think back to the book of Judges in chapter 11 in verses 34 through 35. Uh, we read about uh, Jephthah. And then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides, he, uh, besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble for me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. 
And so we see not only are, are, is Saul making a rash vow like Jephthah, and not only does it endanger his offspring just like it did Jephthah, we actually see the offspring in this instance is actually willing to die in order for the father to fulfill his vow. Uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 43, we read, And Jonathan told him, I have tasted a little honey with the tip of my staff that was in my hand. Here I am, I will die. When we read Jephthah's daughter say in Judges chapter 11, verse 36, And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. Now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemy, the Ammonites. And so we see the offspring of these men who are making rash vows that they're willing to uh, uh, to die in order for their uh, fathers to, make, to complete these vows. So the picture of Saul isn't very flattering in this instance. Uh, one of Israel's worst judges, um, the author of Samuel, is actually uh, painting this picture of Saul in his book, and he's saying, this guy Saul, he was just like Jephthah. He was just like that judge. And we see the author of Samuel actually doing the same thing with King David. Uh, I mentioned a few moments ago, we're going to have to uh, skip ahead according for time, but uh, I mentioned a few mom uh, moments ago about this episode, whole episode where uh, Tamar, is, uh, David's daughter, was actually abused by Amnon, and David didn't do anything about it, right? Um, and actually what happened is that uh, David's other son, uh, Absalom, kills Amnon, and this kind of brings about this civil war in Israel. Well, that's very similar to how the book of Judges ends. We have these two stories about these uh, men who, uh, have, uh, who are in charge of these women who are abused, uh, sexually, and they don't do anything about it. Um, and what these actually events lead to in the book of Judges is actually a civil war among the people of Israel. And so we see the author of Samuel painting uh, David too, like these characters that we see in the book of Judges, right? So what's going on here? What, what are we to make a, a, of what the author of Samuel is doing here? Well, it it looks like the author of Samuel, as I said uh, at the beginning uh, of, our, of our discussion tonight, it looks like the author of Samuel is living at a time well on into Israel's monarchy. And he's saying, okay, we held out hope for our monarchy to, to turn, the, turn the tide for us and to stop this pattern of canonization, but the monarchy has actually been a terrible thing for the country. It's these kings who are actually continuing to, to lead us into the, this practice of canonization. Even, even our, from the very start, our first two kings just continued on doing what these evil, wicked judges were doing. Okay, And so the, uh, the author of Samuel has this negative perception that he's wanting to pass on about Israel's monarchy. Okay, And he's tying his book to the book of Judges so that we'll say, yeah, uh, we're, we're looking for a king, but we certainly shouldn't put our hope in the monarchy as a whole because the monarchy as a whole is a bad thing, right? And so we shouldn't think, uh, read this and think for a second, however, that the author of Samuel is contradicting uh, the hope that ends the book of Judges. He's not contradicting the hope in the Israelite monarchy. Rather, he's, uh, he's giving it more specificity okay uh, remember how the book of Samuel begins and ends it begins by saying the Lord's going to protect his king and his anointed right and so the author of Samuel is saying guys we don't need to to put our hope in our monarchy who's leading us further down the road of canonization 
Rather, we need to pay careful attention to the promises that God makes to David, one of our first monarchs, and put our hope in a single descendant, uh, in a single specific monarch coming from the, from the line of David. Uh, this is actually the second theological uh, point that I want us to look at tonight. Um, it's actually what's known as the Davidic Covenant. Just for the sake of time, I'm going to uh, move quickly through it. But in the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 7, verses 8 through 16, uh, b- before this, David has it in his heart to build the Lord a house. Well, um, the Lord reveals through, through a prophet, and he says to David, David, you're not going to build a house for me. I'm going to build a, a house or a, a dynasty for you. Um, and uh, one of the things that we read about in these verses in chapter 7, 8 through 16, uh, part of this dynasty is actually David's physical descendants, right? The, the kings that come from him that we continue reading about in the book of Kings, um, specifically Solomon. <coughs> but there are some statements uh, in these verses that can't be attributed to any king because the statement is so grand and so fantastic that no one king in Israel's history is going to be able to, uh, uh, to fulfill uh, what God is promising here. Um, this line, this uh, person coming from the line of David is ne- going to need to be uh, uh, not only coming from David, he, he's going to need to be something uh, beyond just a, a regular king coming from David's line. Uh, what he needs to be is a, a messianic figure or a figure that's going to Usher the usher Israel into the into the final age, and so the the author of um, the author of Samuel is saying, guys, we don't need to put our trust and our faith in Israel's monarchy as a whole. We need to put our trust and our faith in this specific descendant uh, coming from David. And of course, we know from uh, reading our New Testament that we can identify this specific individual coming from David's line as our Lord and Savior. Jesus Christ. So let's uh, quickly move to the book of Kings, and we're going to look at uh, Kings in a historical perspective. Well, uh, when we're going to consider the the author of Kings, we actually, it's kind of like the book of Samuel. We don't really know anything about who wrote uh, the book of Kings. The Talmud, which is a collection of uh, Jewish uh, traditions, uh, tries to identify Jeremiah as the author. Uh, That's probably not uh, true, but just like the book of 1 Samuel, uh, who wrote the book uh, isn't all that important because we don't know anything about that anyway. But when the book was actually written is actually uh, very important uh, once we come to <coughs> look at the book theologically. And so the, the book of Kings narrates events all the way from 1 Samuel, which ended from a, uh, at about 970 uh, B.C., all the way to events that ended in 561 BC. So we have a very, very large uh, span of history that's narrated in the, in the book of Kings. Um, in the book of Kings, we begin with David's first son, Solomon, and we see his rise and his reign and his disobedience in 1 Kings uh, chapter 1 through uh, chapter 11. Uh, we see a very important um, development in Israel's history. We see the division of the kingdom of Israel in uh, 1 Kings chapter 12 through verse 14. It actually looks like um, even though Solomon was this very wise and prosperous king, one of the reasons that he was uh, able to be so prosperous is that he put a very heavy tax burden burden and a labor burden on the people of Israel. 
And after Solomon dies, uh, the people of Israel come to his son Rehoboam and they say, Rehoboam, lighten this burden from us. It's just more than we can, we can actually continue to bear. And uh, Rehoboam actually refuses to do it. And so what we see is that the, the kingdom of Israel, the one people of God who God brought out of Egypt and he brought into the, into the promised land uh, and then went through all the, the turmoil of the book of Judges and we start to see things fall apart, but then we're reunited in the book of Samuel, the, this one people of God. All of a sudden we see this one people of God split and they're no longer the one people of God, but we actually see two kingdoms. We see a northern kingdom made up of the uh, ten northern tribes of Israel, uh, and we actually see a southern kingdom made up of the two southern tribes of Israel. And the southern uh, tribe of uh, kingdom of Israel is actually known as Judah, and that's actually the place where the Davidic descendant continues to reign. Um, but as we continue through the book of Samuel, from uh, from the, through the book of Kings and First Kings. Uh, 15 through 2 Kings 17, we see the demise of both kingdoms. Both kingdoms are going downhill, but we actually see the fall of the northern kingdom into exile to this nation called Assyria. Uh, God uses the Assyrians to come in and wipe out the people of Israel and to exile them out of the promised land. And as we continue to read in the book of 2 Kings 18 through 25, the same thing happens to the southern kingdom, uh, just with a different nation this time, the nation of Babylon. So for time's sake, we're going to skip ahead just a little bit um, over the remaining literary stuff that I had planned and begin to think about the book of Kings in a, in a theological perspective. Well, um, I mentioned before that we know that the book of Kings was actually written after the nation of Israel, the two nations of Israel were taken into exile. And I think this is very significant because as we think about the nation of Israel in exile uh, out of the promised land, one of the questions that they surely would have had is, how did this happen? How, we were the people of God. How, how did this come about that God uses uh, our enemies, the people who who are by no means God's people, how did he use them to uh, come and capture us and take us out of the land that he had promised, uh, promised to us? Well, uh, it looks like throughout the book of uh, Kings that the author is trying to answer this question uh, for, the, for the Israelites. In the book of 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 7 through 8, we read, And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God and had brought them up out of the hand uh, out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. Uh, just a verse later in the, the book of Second Kings, uh, chapter 17, verse 15, we actually see this uh, mentioning of Israel's covenant made explicit. That, that verse reads, they despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he had given them. And it says they went after all these false gods and that uh, God commanded them not to do that, but they continued to follow after these false gods. And we see uh, that gradually this answer beginning to crop up in the book of uh, Kings as to why God would use a foreign, uh, foreign uh, nation to judge his people Israel and the answer is because his people Israel failed to obey the covenant that they had agreed to follow when he originally brought them into the land. We 
actually see this continued on uh, when the nation of uh, Judah, the southern kingdom, is exiled. In 2 Kings uh, chapter 23, 26 through 27, uh, we actually read that basically the southern kingdom uh, behaved in the same way that the northern kingdom did, and so they were exiled out of the land as well. Uh, thinking so, point, uh, first theological theme that I want us to see in the book of Kings is the answer to the question why? Why, why was Israel, uh, why did they find themselves in exile? And the answer is very clearly they disobeyed the covenant that they had promised to keep uh, before the Lord in order to, uh, for him to bring them into the land. Second theological theme that I want us to consider quickly is the important, the continuing importance of the Davidic dynasty. Um, if we were to look at the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom uh, of Israel after they have divided, we actually see uh, several important uh, things when we compare them. Uh, first thing that kind of uh, maybe piques our interest is that we see there's 20 kings in the, in the northern kingdom, but there's also 20 kings in the southern kingdom. So they're the same number of kings, but actually, <coughs> even though there's 20 kings in the northern kingdom, there's actually 10 dynasties uh, that make up the northern kingdom of Israel. So what's a dynasty? It just means one king begat another, okay? And so the idea is that there's a total of 10 dynasties uh, in the northern kingdom uh, during this time until the northern kingdom was exiled compared to just one dynasty, for the southern kingdom is the Davidic dynasty, okay? We also see this uh, when we compare the, um, when we look at the uh, uh, theological evaluation of these kings. In the, all the time that the northern kingdom existed, uh, according to the book of Kings, there were no good kings at all whatsoever in, in the northern kingdom of Israel. But if we look at the southern kingdom, the uh, what, what we would know and see referred to as the kingdom of Judah in the Bible and uh, what continues from the line of David, we actually encounter several good things. And so what we see is actually, a, I think, a theological theme being presented to us by the author of Kings, and he's saying, guys, think about David. God made a covenant with David all the way back in uh, the book of Samuel in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and that covenant, those promises that God uh, promised to David to uh, to continue his line and to eventually uh, bring about a, a messianic deliverer for the nation, God's still going forward with those promises. And even while you guys are in exile, even when everything seems uh, upside down and like there's nothing right with the world, if you put your faith in David and specifically his descendant, you actually have hope for a future. So I wanted to uh, end tonight by looking at, uh, uh, at the last uh, four books that we've encountered. Go, to, uh, go on to the last slide, uh, Brian, if you can. Um, we're actually going to look at the former prophets, and one of the things that I think is very interesting when we, can, when we look at the uh, final four books, um, uh, what make up the, the former prophets, as I'm calling them, is that they actually share a lot of similarities uh, with humanity as a whole. Um, in Genesis chapter 1, uh, verses uh, uh, through 3, we actually see a lot of similarities. So the Bible begins in Genesis chapter 1 uh, and 2 with humanity living in God's presence. Well, if we think about the former prophets, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, 
we actually see at the very beginning of the former prophets, Israel entering into the promised land and living with God in their midst. If we continue to think about Genesis 1 through 3, we see humanity sins and is exiled out of the promised land, right? We encounter that in Genesis chapter 3. Well, when we think about the former prophets, we actually see Israel sins by breaking their covenant. We see this in Judges, Samuel, and Kings. Uh, and so there, there's a comparison there. And then uh, in, the, in the last thing we see in Genesis 3 is that the, the first human couple, Adam and Eve, are exiled out of the garden. Uh, humanity no longer lives with God in their midst. Well, when we come to the very end of the book of Kings, we see Israel being exiled out of the promised land. Israel no longer lives with God in their midst. And so when we see these uh, four books, the former prophets, uh, read together as a, as a, as a single narrative, uh, we see some interesting comparisons here. And it's almost as if the, the, author, the authors of these books are saying, guys, if you want to see the history of humanity, look at the history of Israel. We started off with so much promise in the midst of the promised land, uh, living with God in our midst, but because of our own sin uh, that we had in our hearts, we were exiled out of God's uh, land, out of the land or the garden, uh, and we are no longer living with God uh, in our midst. So this story that we see about in the former prophets is actually, not only is it the story of Israel, Israel's story is actually the story of all of humanity as a whole, and it continues to be our story even today. Next week, we're going to begin to look at the, pro not next week, two weeks from now, we're going to begin looking at the prophets of Isaiah and Jeremiah. We're going to be se uh, begin seeing uh, some of the ways that God is going to address Israel's problem, and in that, we're going to see how God is also addressing our problem uh, as, as all of humanity. So uh, let's uh, end with a word of prayer tonight. Father, uh, thank you, Lord, um, for your word, Lord, uh, for what we can learn in it. Um, Father, your, your word goes deeper than, than any of us are, are ever able to mind, Lord. Um, Father, if we were to uh, start going uh, through, through it, Father, we would never reach the bottom, Lord. Um, Father, uh, thank you so much just for the wonderful intricacies of it, Father. Um, thank you for its simplicity, Lord. So much of your revelation and your message for us can just be read straight off the pages of Scripture, Lord. Um, without very much thought even, Lord. Um, Father, uh, thank you, Father, for the message uh, of the former prophets and these books that we looked at tonight. Father, thank you, Father, for, uh, for an anointed king that you brought from David, Father, who is ultimately the answer for uh, not only for Israel's problems, Father, but for all of humanity's problems, and that, that problem is sin, Father. Lord, uh, may we as Fisherville Baptist Church and the people of God put our faith uh, in David's anointed son, Father. Uh, and may we be washed by his blood uh, and made pure in your sight uh, through his sacrifice on our behalf, Father. And uh, may we put our hope, Father, uh, in his resurrection and the hope uh, that it gives us for a life eternal with you. In your name that I pray, amen.